0: Thanks very much. I mean, I can't believe I'm here, and you can't believe I'm here. I mean, this is, this is uh, demand of one, um, which is generated supply. Uh, you all thought you'd, you know, as you left Keeble, you'd had the last exposure to, to having to sit through my tutorials, um, and here's another one. Um, and, of course, when I left Keeble, I thought it was the last I'd... See of the likes of you but here I am um, you 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 were I mean Kasim might have been scared let me say it was reciprocal I mean Kasim was paired with Tim Besley. now uh, you think Kasim and Tim they're just little kids right they're just little kids but what are they now right uh, what did they become and what was in them at the time they were students at Keeble Kasim very distinguished professor of philosophy at the University of Warwick. You know that Warwick's the most technocratic university that hoovers up British talent, and it hoovered up Cassie um, to a chair. Tim Besley, the most distinguished professor of economics in the country, professor at LSE. In fact, Warwick's just tried to hoover him up as well. Right? So there I was teaching these two who uh, uh, fantastically clever people, and, uh, and they were just the tip of a much bigger iceberg. Right? Um, earlier this week, um, a guy called David Fielding came in. I don't know if David overlapped with any of you. He's now a very distinguished professor of economics in New Zealand. You know? So you were a spectacularly clever lot. Um, but enough of that. Let me actually say something that, uh, uh, that's sort of beyond uh, both, both beyond the present and and uh, so sort of both back to tutorials and and forward to the future. Um, I'm not going to talk about the global economic crisis. You read about it every day in the papers. And if you want a if you want a solution, the solution is antidepressants, frankly, because there's there there is there is no, there is no bloody solution. You know, the, the euro is built in and in they genuinely did manage to build an insoluble problem and then put themselves inside it. Uh, the US crisis is um, uh, is, a, is a political crisis um, but they've managed to build a polity uh, which is so dysfunctional um, that they can't solve their, their, their fiscal crisis. Uh, the US seems to be turning into a into an oligarchy rather than a democracy. Um, so, those are, so that's the OECD for you. And, uh, uh, and, and, and as, for the, as for Britain, well, we're in the safe hands of, of Ed. Where's Ed, I ask myself, you know? Ed, Ed, I taught just after you, right? Tim and I taught him, and look. <laughs> we keep thinking, where do you pick those ideas up? How we look at each other and say, not from me. You know? Anyway. Um, but I want to talk about Africa and its future because for all my working life, I've been working in Africa, and it's been, you needed antidepressants. And now, at last, you don't. You know, um, uh, It's a reversal of fortunes. And I wanted to talk about Africa's prospects and what's in in play. Um, And there are are three different economic opportunities that different African countries will be facing. Um, But by far the biggest uh, is harnessing Africa's natural resources. Um, And that is Africa's big opportunity. So this, I'm actually going to teach you a number, and you'll curse me because in a year's time, this will be the only thing you can actually remember from your blur of the reunion at Keeble, this damn number, So here's the number, and this, this stage is conveniently arrayed into squares, and I'm standing on one, and this square represents the average square mile of the OECD. OECD, the rich countries of the world. So This is the average square mile of the OECD. And we're going to lift the carpet tile and look underneath. And underneath this carpet tile is $300,000 of subsoil assets. And now I'm going to move to this square. And this square represents the average square mile of Africa we're going to do the same thing. We're going to lift the carpet tile and look underneath. What's underneath? And to make it more fun, we're going to do it like a tutorial in which, instead of me telling you, you're going to tell me. And to make it manageable, you're going to vote. And here's the vote. So this square mile of Africa, it could be less than the $300,000 of the OECD. And it could be more than the $300,000 of the OECD. And you're going to vote. Everybody who thinks this square mile of Africa is less than the OECD hands up now. And everybody who thinks it's more than the OECD hands up now. Now, you're all going to remember this, because you're nearly all wrong. So the the three people who actually got it right, they'll remember it because they're right. Anyway, they knew it. Uh, And all the people who voted wrong you remember it, because not only are you wrong, you're very wrong. The right number for Africa is only $60,000. One-fifth of the OECD. Now, what's going on? What you have not learned is that Africa's got less than the OECD. What you've learned, actually, is you knew all along that I cheated. Um, the figures I gave you were for known subsoil assets. I tried to find the figures for unknown subsoil assets, but I just couldn't get my hands on them, you know? So that was a joke. Um, if you think about it, what produces these subsoil assets is geological processes millions of years ago. Um, they're random, and over large areas, the averages should be pretty similar. So Africa should look pretty similar to the OECD should be a bit higher, because the OECD's been digging the stuff out for 200 years. Africa hasn't. So what you've learnt is that Africa has got many more resources than it's yet discovered. It's discovered $60,000 worth. It's probably got $300,000 worth up. It's the last frontier for resource discovery. And with high global commodity prices, over the next decade, that, those resources will be discovered by hook or by crook, and probably by crook. Right? So that's, that's um, the thing that will drive growth in Africa, is these, these big resource discoveries. And you, you read it every month. You know? March, Kenya discovered oil. December, Tanzania discovered $150 billion of gas. Just before that, Mozambique discovered a lot of gas, and so on and so forth. Angola's got so much oil, it's going to become Africa's biggest oil producer. Um, So, uh, big increase in quantities. The real issue is, um, is Africa going to repeat um, what is actually a rather sad history of natural resource extraction? The history of natural resource extraction in Africa is not of development, it's a plunder. That's not inevitable. If We take two African countries, both small, both 40 years ago dirt poor, both get the same natural resource, diamonds. One of them is a landlocked desert, and the other has a beautiful coastal position with lots of rainfall. And you look 40 years on. So diamonds plus intrinsic geographic situation. 40 years on, one of those countries is the richest country in Africa, and one is at the global bottom of the Human Development Index. Anybody know which ones? Botswana. Botswana. And no, global bottom of the Human Development Index. Sierra Leone. Both have diamonds, both small economies. The landlocked desert plus diamonds goes up to the richest country in Africa. Uh, The beautiful coastal position plus diamonds crashes to the bottom of the world economy. So what that shows you is policy really matters in determining whether these natural resources are harnessed for development or not. Policy matters much more with natural resource development than it does just with with other development strategies. So, what policies matter? Well, there's a chain of decisions, and I'm gonna whip through the the chain of decisions, and then we'll look at the politics of it, um, why that chain of decisions usually goes wrong. So, I'm gonna simplify it into five blocks, distinct issues. The first block you already know has gone wrong in Africa. Because the first block is discover your natural resources. The reason why Africa's discovered so much less is a a piece of political economy. There's been a lot less prospecting until very recently. And that's because investors haven't invested in prospecting. Why not? Well, this is an area where you can't just leave to the free market. If you leave it to the free market, you get the economics of a gold rush If you think about a gold rush, there are two phases. Phase one, before the gold rush. Everybody sits on their hands and waits for somebody else to go and spend the money doing the first prospecting. You get a long phase before a gold rush where there's underinvestment in prospecting because everybody's wanting to free ride on the information generated by others. And then somebody does invest strikes lucky and then you get overinvestment in prospecting. Everybody crowds in. Right? So, the, this is an area, because it's basically discovery is about information, it's the economics of information. We know the economics of information is, a, is an area where markets don't work very well at all because of big externalities. Right? So, what's the solution to that? Let's get some public geological information. Information is a public good, and so you need some public geological information. There's another reason why it's very important. It's a concept called time inconsistency, which I bet wasn't even a concept at the time you did economics. It was discovered around the time you were doing it, I think, and uh, the guy who formulated it got a Nobel Prize. Um, and uh, So let's go back. Let's suppose I'm the government. I'm the government of Sierra Leone, I'm going to auction off these squares. I'm going to sell these squares. Ten squares, and I'll sell one of the squares. The prospecting rights are one of the squares. And let's suppose all we know is that somewhere under one of these squares is a billion dollars. We don't know where. Ten squares, and I'm going to sell one of them. What do you bid? Come on, you're all financial wizards now. What's one square worth? <laughs> there's a one in ten chance of a billion, so it's worth 100 million, you might think, right? But here's the problem. Here's the time consistency problem. There are only two possible outcomes. I dig the hole in the ground, there's nothing there. What do I get? Well, at the best, the government gives me a Kleenex and says, sorry, you, know, you just lost 100, you paid 100 million pounds and not got anything, right? Um, the other possible outcome is yippee. I've got a billion. What might the government of Sierra Leone say? <laughs> yeah, they might say. And well how could they justify that? I say but I paid 100 million dollars for the rights. Here's the document. Yeah, it's so, what might the opposition to the government say? And sold it too cheaply. And too cheaply. why did I sell it too cheaply? Because I was foolish? Foolish? Is that what they want to accuse me of? Corruption. Oh, <laughs> me? That's right. They're going to say uh, the government cheated, um, vote for us, and we'll tear up the contract <laughs> and sell it again. <laughs> um, so, um, now, the, the time consistency point is that um, you, can anticip- you, as a firm, can anticipate all those problems before you make your bid. So is the rights to, this, to prospecting this square worth more than 100 million or less than 100 million when you factor those considerations into account? Less? Less. So suppose you bid fifty. And then, OK, two outcomes. You don't find anything. You've wasted 50 million. You find a billion. It's worth, still. it's worth still. You've only paid 50 for a billion. This is going to get torn up, you see. So there may be no equilibrium. There may be no equilibrium. That's why there's so little prospecting. Again, the solution is get public geological information. Suppose we could cut it down. We've got enough public geological information to say it's either here or here. now our square prospecting rights are worth 500 million and so the time consistency problem whilst it hasn't gone away completely is much less acute so that's the step one find your natural resources and get some public geological information Uh, I finally persuaded the World Bank to, to last year that it should offer loans for public geological information, aid for public geological information. Until then, in the Reagan years, believe it or not, and it's actually quite easy to believe, the American government insisted that the World Bank shouldn't uh, support public geological information. I had lunch last year with the chief executive of the biggest mining company in the world, and I said I'm, I'm encouraging governments to get public geological information. And I thought he'd say, You should leave, that's stupid, leave it to the experts. Instead he said, of course, of course governments should get public geological information before they come to the likes of me. They'd get better deals, wouldn't they? He should know. So that's the first link in the chain. Next link in the chain is tax, tax. If you don't tax the rents on natural resources, these poor countries don't get any benefits at all. Um, They don't get any benefits otherwise because they don't own the equity, the shareholders in the foreign companies are all foreign, and the skilled labour is all foreign. So it's either tax revenue or nothing. I came across a deal in Mozambique, a 50-year tax holiday. All they'll get is the environmental damage. astoundingly misdesigned uh, tax systems. And sometimes it's not just tax. So, Eastern DRC. DRC? Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is actually neither democratic nor a republic. And even the Congo bit is the rebranded Zaire. So uh, anyway, Eastern DRC, a billion dollars of gold goes out each year. Revenues from gold, from that gold exports accruing to the Treasury of DRC, thirty-seven thousand dollars. So, uh, so these are spectacularly misaligned uh, systems of capture of revenue. Spectacularly. Basic principle: tax what you can observe. And If you're going to tax it, build the capacity to observe it. I was in Zambia recently, talking to the Zambian Revenue Authority, and they disarmingly. Admitted that they said, all the best accountants in the country work for the copper companies, not for us. Now, what's the job if you're, if you're hired by a copper company in Zambia as an accountant? What's your job? Use tax exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So all the all the smart brains in Zambia uh, are, are pitted to, uh, are on the job of designing profits such that. Taxable profits are basically zero. And then the Dumbos are in the Tax Revenue Authority. And, uh, Actually, it's the same in the UK. <laughs> same <laughs> in the UK, yeah, 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 yeah. And, of course, if, you know, if somebody turns out to be bright in the Zambia Revenue Authority, guess what happens? They're hired by the copper companies. Yeah. So, um, so the, the solution to that is... Keep the tax system really simple on observables, like royalties. Yeah. Um, so, discover your resources, tax them. Next thing in the chain, avoid a situation like the Niger Delta. That is, deal properly with the local community. And this is where we get into a, you know the sort of more ethical dimensions of things. What is properly? And properly does not mean... Um, uh, give all the rights to the locals. The NGO community at the moment uh, is um, lobbying for something called full free and informed consent by the locals. And that sounds really right, but actually isn't. Full free and informed consent, if you treat it literally, means give the locals the power of veto. You don't want to do that. If you give the locals the power of veto, effectively they can say, unless you give us the rents, we're going to veto it. Huh? You don't want the locals to have the rents. The rents should belong to all citizens. Spread the rents as... Nobody's generated those rents. They're just there. And so you want to spread them as widely as possible. Once you go to the idea of local rights, of ownership, there's no limit. The little country called Sao Tomi Principe, two little islands in the Gulf of Guinea, they're sitting on top of an oil well. Um, so they're all rich, except that uh, Sao Tome Principe is actually two islands. All the people live on Sao Guess where the oil is? Principe. Eh? So the three, guess what the three people who live on Principe, on Principe are saying? Eh? It's ours. Eh? Um, so there's no limit to. to, to, to once, once you go to. Once you part from the principle that citizens. Own. Um, so, respect for the local without throwing the baby with the bathwater and uh, without conceding ownership rights. Last two links in the chain. Once you've got the revenues, and again, the, the next thing is ethical what's the right balance between the interests of the present generation and the future generation? And there isn't even an agreed ethical framework here. There's a dispute between sort of a utilitarian approach and a rights-based approach. But both of them would point to uh, to, to using quite a large chunk of revenues for the future. Um, And the typical bias uh, is that uh, governments don't. They spend on consumption. And that that then produces an unsustainable consumption burst and then... Once the, once the stuff runs out, you're back to poverty. Um, so the most elementary thing to do there is, within budgets, you need to report what the resource revenues are and how they're used. I'm an advisor to the IMF at the moment, and I'm literally in battle with the IMF to try and persuade them to, uh, to rejig um, the, uh, the budget reporting systems in resource-rich countries so they actually report that and the, the IMF is, such a conser- is conservative in the worst possible sense, so they're thinking of loads of reasons why they don't want to do that, even though it's the most important single number for a society in a, in, that is depleting uh, its natural resources. What proportion of those depleted natural assets are being offset by accumulating other assets? Then the final link in the chain is, what assets do you do? What assets do you acquire? And the poster child is Norway. And Norway's the wrong model. Norway's the right model for Norway. Does anybody know what Norway does with its oil money? It's got a huge fund. Yeah. Future fund. What do they buy in that? What assets do they hold in that fund? Yeah, foreign financial securities, you know. So, and that makes a lot of sense for Norway, because Norway literally has more invested capital per worker than any other country in the world. So adding yet more capital stock in Norway will be a really dumb thing to do. You're better owning capital in Brazil or China. And now think of yourself as Sierra Leone. You're at the opposite end of the spectrum. You've got less invested capital per member of the the labor force than anywhere else. So putting your money abroad is really stupid. You want to invest it at home. But in order to invest it at home properly, you need to build the capacity to invest well. So you've got to build that capacity, and that's what I call investing in investing, building the capacity to invest properly. So that's the decision chain. Historically, it's gone wrong again and again. Repeating history is indeed the default option. So one prognosis for Africa is just that the natural resource story leads to another round of plunder. That decision chain breaks down pretty well all the way along the chain, and so what you get is plunder. You get a short-term boom and then reversion to poverty. But repeating history is not inevitable. Let's try another question. What is the best run economy in Europe today? And we we don't have to be polite. The best run big economy in Europe today. We don't have to be polite and say Britain, do we? (laughs) Yeah, Germany, it's not a difficult question. Germany, yeah. The interesting question is why, politically, is, is Germany the best run economy in Europe today? I sometimes give this lecture in Germany, and you can see the, 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 the smug faces with the little bubbles that say, because we're German. Right? And it's the wrong answer. The right answer is that Germany is the best-run economy in Europe today because it used to be the worst. You go back three generations, Germany uniquely messed up so badly It went into hyperinflation. And Germans came out of that with a burning sense of never again. Now, across Africa at the moment, there's that burning sense of never again. Not in terms of inflation, but in terms of plunder. Young people are all too well aware that the history of African resource extraction is plunder. And they're very angry. And they don't want that to be repeated. But the German genius was to harness that uh incoate sense of never again into a practical political reality. And that reality was built on a political tripod. There's three legs to it. And the first leg of the tripod is rules. If you're going to get this these economic decisions right again and again for a generation, which is the time scale, then you need some economic rules, some decision rules. Um, Africa's starting to do that. For example, last year, Ghana put in place a, a rule that 30% of the oil revenues should be saved. So starting to put in the rules. You know, rules alone are not enough. We don't have to look at Africa to know that rules alone are, are not enough. Let's look at the euro. Right? The euro is two fiscal rules, 17 governments, and 11 years. How many of those 17 Governments have followed the two fiscal rules for 11 years.: So we've had something zero, we've had three. Any other offers? And you're right. Well done, Brendan. You've obviously learned something since Keeble. (Laughter) <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Brendan's right. There's one who stuck to him, and it's the Finns, um, which tells you something about the Finns, that they're either very good or a bit foolish, really. Anyway, the lesson from that is rules alone are not enough. Rules provide guidance, but they don't provide enforcement. The next thing the Germans did, apart from rules, was build dedicated institutions. If inflation's your problem, you need an independent central bank. Africa's problem's different. So it doesn't need an independent central bank, but it does need dedicated institutions. It's got to build them. But the third leg of the political tripod is really the important one. Rules and institutions, Africa's got loads of them. They're just bits of paper. What made the difference in Germany was that Germany built a critical mass of citizens who understood the issues therefore understood why the rules and institutions were important and have defended them ever since. And that's what Africa needs to build. It needs the rules, it needs the dedicated institutions, and it needs to build this critical mass of citizens who understand why the issues are important. Building that critical mass is hard but not impossible. The default option is is populism. In March... Kenya discovered oil. In April, I met the finance minister. He said, it's already a nightmare. A nightmare having discovered oil? Yes, because the public sector has just put in for a huge wage increase. I I remember the, the, the dead magazine Punch, probably died before your time, a comic magazine in Britain. 1966, I can remember a cartoon from then. And it was two tramps on a hill talking, and one Trump said to the other, and then we discovered North Sea Oil, and there didn't seem any point in working anymore. That's the default populist option. Um, And so what has to be built is a counter-narrative which says these resource discoveries are our big chance. We can finance our own transformation out of poverty, but our big opportunity is also our big responsibility. The resources will be depleted over the next generation, and so our generation has the responsibility to determine the fate of our children. Either our children will grow up in Botswana, or they'll grow up in Sierra Leone. So it's the job of both the leadership within Africa and, using the internet and so on, all of us to actually try and help build that critical mass of informed citizens. Um, It's not forlorn. I'll I'll end a story. I I do a lot of visits to Africa. I've done 12 so far since January. But in October, I was brought into uh, Uganda to give a lecture at the Central Bank. Not a big deal, public lecture at the Central Bank. And it was on oil. Um, some young Ugandans got wind that I was coming. By the time I arrived, um, the Central Bank had an audience of 2,500 people, um, nearly all young. Uh, And all with with this, this was North Africa in the making, all with a sense, are our elders going to plunder this oil? uh, Or are we going to develop the country? So those are the battles that I'm now engaged in fighting. And uh, I don't know what you are now doing, but uh, I'd be interested to hear. So over to you. Thanks very much.